And this morning, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy 4. And we are going to continue our study on exposing doctrines of demons, part 3. And look at some of what we just heard in that monologue. But before we get started, I want you to think about some things. I want to give you a little quiz. It's only got one question in it. I want you to think about it. I want you to consider this. What is the worst consequence for false doctrine? What is the most terrible thing that happens when people believe lies? I think about it. You know, maybe you can even write it down in your notes. What is the worst thing? A few might put that, oh, well, it's bad because um, it's not true, and that's right. Others might put, well, it's bad because uh, it causes division within the church, and, and that's true, too. A few more might add that um, it causes pain and suffering and, and uh, just hurt in people's lives. A few might have put that. I would imagine that most people, if they heard that, would have said this. The danger, and we have learned this in the text, of false doctrine is that leads to apostasy, a permanent damned state of the unredeemed, that men perish because of false doctrine, because of believing hypocritical lie speakers. And that is a terrible thing, but there is a much, much greater tragedy than that. You see, in America, we often think of ourselves rather than anything else. We're thinking of false doctrine and what it does to us, how it affects us, uh, instead of thinking about God. Because the most terrible thing that false doctrine brings about is that it steals glory from God. Far worse than men going to hell, far worse than men suffering, is when God does not get the glory. You see, the only reason God created you, and the only reason He created me, and the only reason He created the universe was to the praise of the glory of His grace. This world, this universe, is not about us. It's not about what we think and what we want. And our sense of justice and our sense of right and wrong, it is about God and Him being glorified. I remember one of my seminary professors said this, and I had to ask him what he meant, but he said, the telos of history is doxological. And I thought, what is that? And he looked at me and said, aren't you a graduate student? Get a dictionary. The telos is the ultimate end or goal of history is doxological, bringing glory to God. We sang the doxology this morning. Everything that happens is pointing to the ultimate glory of God. And that is what God wants, that's what God deserves, because He is God and He calls the shots. Now, as we have worked our way through the text before us, we have discovered that when people believe a lie, when they follow Satan instead of God, they don't give glory to God. That is the big problem. Sure, there are other consequences that happen to us and other people, 
But the big problem is God doesn't get glory from false doctrine. We have learned that in this book, Paul has said many good things to Timothy about problems he was facing, false teachers, and uh, things about prayer, about worship, about men's and women's roles, about leadership and their qualification. And at the end of chapter 3, he says the church is to be a pillar and support of the truth. He says the church is to be that which undergirds the truth of God's word. It is to hold up God's word, is to exalt God's word, is to lift it up and model it. That is positively what the church is to be. But in another sense, there is a negative aspect of being a pillar in support of the truth, and that is to fight for the truth. We must, in the words of Jude in Jude 3, contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That is what you and I are to do. We are to be contenders, battlers, warriors for the truth. Why? Because everything that's happening in the world that's wrong and contrary to God's word is an attack on the truth and is promoted by error. And the church is the only place that has the word of God and is teaching the word of God, at least those churches that are giving glory to God. You see, when... Error eclipses truth. It does cause apostasy. It does cause pain and confusion and conflict and on and on. But the worst thing is that it steals glory from God. Whenever you devote yourself to a lie, you steal from God glory to His name. So if you have your Bibles, look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, and follow along as I read these first five verses Paul says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter time some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now, so far from this little text, we have mined some very important and great truths about false teaching and the apostasy that accompanies it. We have seen the certainty of apostasy, the Spirit explicitly says. We have seen the time when it will come, our times, the last days, in the latter days. We have seen what apostasy is, some will fall away from the faith. We have seen why they fall away from the faith, they pay attention to deceitful spirits. And we have seen the means by which deceitful spirits use to cause people to fall away from the faith, doctrines of demons... We have seen those who propagate them, hypocritical lie speakers, seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. We have seen all that from the text. And then last week we saw two examples that Paul gives here. One, they forbid marriage, and two, advocate abstaining from foods. At first glance, rather benign things, but in reality, very demonic and hellish. 
We learned that these two demonic doctrines, the forbidding of marriage and abstaining from food, although seemingly very different, are of the same kind. They are the same kind because they are both asceticism, legalism, man-made methods of trying to be sanctified and justified by works. And we pointed out that there are seven characteristics of sanctification by grace. First, you must be saved by grace. Second, God is the gracious person who sanctifies us. You never sanctify yourself. Three, God sanctifies you all at once when you are saved, and also in the process as you grow in Christ-likeness. Four, you must walk in the power of the Holy Spirit in order to be sanctified by grace. Five, you must submit to the Word of God in order to be sanctified by grace. You must continually rely on God's gracious provision of prayer to be sanctified by grace. And you must always be giving thanks for thanks to God for sanctifying you by grace. You reject any one of these. You are not being sanctified. You are rebelling against God. You must have all of these gracious provisions of God or you cannot be sanctified. You are rebelling. And this is what Satan wants to do, isn't it? He wants to come into the church. He wants to give you a chocolate-covered cyanide pill. He wants to wrap up Um, error in religious piety. He wants to present you the hook with the bait of religion. And so many people swallow it quickly, seeing that it has a form of goodness, but inside it contradicts the Word of God. It goes against sanctification by grace. He says, as he did to Eve, surely you will be like God. Now being like God is good, is it not? And with it came the lie, you will not die. He wants you to turn your personal convictions into divine mandates. Now we have talked about this a little bit. I want to talk about it some more. It's very important. Personal convictions are good. They're wonderful. They're they're things that you impose upon your life to help you grow in godliness. And every godly person that has ever lived had many personal convictions. As a matter of fact, personal convictions are what make a person. Personal convictions are those custom-tailored rules that you make for yourself to keep yourself from sins or to make yourself more disciplined in those areas you need to be disciplined. Let's say, you know, you have discovered that if you don't read your Bible in the morning, you just never get around to reading it. So you make a rule for yourself. I'm going to get up every day and read my Bible for 30 minutes no matter what. Now, the Bible doesn't say thou shalt get up and read your Bible for 30 minutes no matter what. But you make that rule for yourself because for you, that's what you have to do to make sure you stay in the Word. That is a rule you make, a conviction. You set these personal boundaries, and maybe it be what you eat. You make rules about what you eat, or what you watch on TV, or what you read, or what you listen to, or where you go, because you know that certain areas you are weak, and you have experienced a failure in those areas, and so you stay away from there. You put up barriers there. And this is all fine and good, and as a matter of fact, it is the characteristic of godly people. This is what Jesus was talking about, wasn't it? When he said, you know, if your right eye causes you to sin, you'll gouge it out. 
I mean, I, I've noticed that we all have our eyes here. You see, what was Jesus driving at? You know, if your hand caused you to stumble, cut it off. I mean, why was he using those terms? He was using hyperbole, exaggerating the point that we need to do whatever it takes to keep from sinning. And for you, it might be different than what it is for me. You have discovered that every time you have ice cream in the refrigerator or the freezer, that at nighttime before you go to bed, you eat all there is. You make a rule. I am not going to store any ice cream in my refrigerator. I will eat it at lunch or breakfast, but I'm not bringing it home. <laughs> but as soon as you say, well, you know, I don't store any ice cream in my freezer. And if you store ice cream in your freezer, you are sinning. Then I have crossed the line. Then I have taken my personal conviction, I've elevated it to the point of Scripture, and now I am telling you that you have to maintain my conviction in order to be right before God. This is a doctrine of demons. One of the great texts on this particular area of false doctrine is Mark chapter 7. We can't go through it all, but you might want to write it down and just read it sometime. This is where the Pharisees came to Jesus, and they were bothered. Because the Pharisees had all these traditions, these traditions of the elders that they held to. They had all these rules about washing and techniques and you know, cleanliness. And you know, they, before they ate, they would wash in a certain way and wash all the utensils just in a certain way, thinking that... What went in the man defiled him. Jesus told them it's not what goes in, but what comes out that defiles the man. And as he's talking to them, they're all bothered because, hey, you know, we've been watching you and your disciples. And, you know, you haven't been doing the little washing thing that we do. I mean, how come you guys are so unholy? You guys aren't like us. You guys need to get your act together. You're sinning against God. Because you aren't keeping the tradition of the elders. Jesus even gives an example. And he blasts them because this is what they do. They'd have parents who were sickly and needed help, needed financial assistance. But the Pharisees were so greedy, they would say this. Everything that have is Corban under the ban that is devoted to God. And I would like to help you with my material possessions, but they all belong to God, and that would be bad stewardship. That was just one example that Jesus gave. And he dealt with them as he dealt with all false teachers. He called them hypocrites, right there in public. You hypocrites. He said they were fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, which says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. That's what they were doing. Jesus was patient with the clueless. Patient with the repentant, patient with the humble, patient with those who are hurting. But man, when it came to false teachers, he got out the flamethrower. I mean, he went after them hard. 
The Pharisees were adding to the word of God and made man-made rules over and above the scriptures in importance. And this is what Jesus said in Mark 7, 9. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Again, in verse 13, he said they were invalidating the word of God by their tradition, which they had handed down. Invalidating it. Now let's get back to 1 Timothy 4. And I think we will discover that the text has all of a sudden become quite clear. Look at verse 3. We've already looked at these two examples of demonic doctrines, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods separately last week. But now we want to look at the second half of verse 3 through verse 5. Here Paul exposes the root of all doctrines of demons. The root problem is this. They steal glory from God by corrupting God's created purpose for things. First, look at the second half of verse 3. Here we learn, notice, that they forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, notice, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Paul says in verse 3 that self-denial in marriage or foods is wrong because God has created them to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Now, this is, this is great. When God says, I've created this and it's good, you can have it, you can have it. And anybody who says, no, it's not good, is saying that God has what? Created what is bad and God cannot create what is bad. Now, notice the text does not say that they are to be shared. God has created things to be shared. It does not say that. The text says God has created things to be gratefully shared. And that is a very important word. It comes again at the end of verse 4. Sure, you can receive things and sure, you can enjoy them. But, only if you have a grateful heart. If you don't, you're sinning against God. Now, if that wasn't enough, notice what else the text says. God has created them not only to be shared, and not only to be gratefully shared, but He qualifies a certain group of people, the only kind of people who can do this. Those who what? Believe and know the truth. Now that is just radical. When I was studying this, I thought, that is something. What he's saying there then is that nothing is for unbelievers. He's saying the good things God has created must be received with gratitude, must be received by believers, must be received by those who know the truth. And those who aren't grateful, who don't believe, who don't know the truth, are stealing from God's glory. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 10.13, whether then, or actually 10.31 I think it is, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do it all to what? The glory of God. Whatever you do, do it all to God's glory. 
Not to your own lust, not to your own pleasure. Do it all to the glory of God. I love what William Hendrickson, a commentator, said. He said, quote, For the Christian, eating and drinking are no secular activities. End quote. Eating and drinking is not some neutral thing for the Christian. We are not in the world, and you know, we're doing spiritual things at church, but the rest of the time we're just kind of neutral. The doctrines of demons deceive people into violating the word of God, and when that happens, God is dishonored and Satan is glorified. The next time you sin, you need to think about this. When you sin, when you choose to believe a lie, or when you choose to submit to what God says is wrong, what Satan says is right, you are, in in effect, bowing down to Satan. You are giving Satan homage. And Satan loves that. He feasts on that. Many say with their lips that they love God, but in their heart, there are seven abominations. There are so many people today who profess to walk with God, but they live like the devil all week. Thomas Watson, describing these people, said, quote, By sin we are enslaved to Satan, who is a hater of mankind and writes all his laws in blood. Sinners before conversion are under Satan's command as the ass at the command of the driver, so he does all the devil's drudgery. No sooner Satan tempts, but he obeys, as the ship is at the command of the pilot who steers it which way he will, so is the sinner at the command of Satan, and he ever steers the ship into hell's mouth. The devil rules all the powers and faculties of a sinner, end quote. And that is exactly right. That is exactly what Ephesians 2 says. We all lived in the lust of our flesh and the lust of our mind and were by nature children of wrath. And we all walked, what, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is what? Working presently right now in every believer. And so all these things you see in the world are not things that are happening because of men, but they are things happening because of demonic forces working through men. A second thing not to miss in the text is that you not only need to be gratefully sharing these things, you also need to believe. God created things for believers who know the truth. Now that is so great. I love that. I mean, I told my wife I almost just bogged down here and never finished. You see, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, what does it tell us? It tells us that the unbeliever, the natural man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And it says... They cannot understand them for they are spiritually appraised. The unbeliever is spiritually dead. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And so he can't understand the things of God. Oh, sure, he can know the Bible daddy. He can know the Bible stories. He can be a, you know unbelieving Bible scholar, no Hebrew and Greek. But what the Greek literally says is, is he does not have the power to know the Word of God. He doesn't have it within himself to understand the spiritual essence of a passage, to experience that in his life and want to submit it. He can't make himself do that. He is powerless. 
to really receive from the Word of God that which God intends for believers to receive from it. He sees the Bible as a dead piece of literature, maybe an ancient piece, maybe a good piece of literature, but just dead literature like any other book. But the believer comes to the Word of God, and it is quite different. And it is his food. It is his nourishment. It is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It pierces his heart and encourages him. That's what it is for the believer. When, when a believer comes to the word of God, it's like sitting down and having coffee with God. And talking with God. God speaks to you through his word. And because you love God. You want to talk with God. You want to hear what God has to say. If a person does not believe in Jesus Christ, he cannot know God's truth. He does not know God's truth because he is unwilling to submit to that truth. And therefore, he will never be truly grateful. I mean really grateful. Oh, he may say he's grateful, but he's not. You can't be an unbeliever and be truly grateful because everything you do is in rebellion against God. Ungratefulness is wickedness and sin. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul describes again the last times just like he describes the last times in 1 Timothy 4. And he says this in chapter 3 verse 1. Now, I'm just going to read this. This sounds like the monologue we just heard a second ago. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, and notice this one, ungrateful. Unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, Treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now notice, these people are described as ungrateful, a characteristic, just to flat out all of these are, characteristics of those who are deceived They are ungrateful. And, of course, the object of our gratefulness is always who? It's God. He is the one who deserves our thanks and our gratitude. But these people, they are ungrateful. And notice that these people, the text says, hold to a form of godliness. These are not people in Satan cults out there, people sacrificing babies or dogs or cats or something. These are people in the church. And they're holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. What power is that? Power through faith in Christ. True salvation through repentance. And notice the advice here. Notice the command here. You know, you need to come alongside of them. Have them over for lunch. Talk to them a little bit. Encourage them. Avoid such men as these, God says. Avoid them. Isn't that exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5? He says, if you see any so-called brother, if he be an immoral person, do not even eat with such a one. Today, we've just totally let down God in this area. We're just hovering around false teachers. We're coddling them and, and 
spending time with them and reading their books. Avoid such men as these, God says. We are going to learn more about this next week. But right now, you need to remember that bad company corrupts good morals. You work in a coffee shop, at the end of the day, guess what you smell like? Coffee. You hang around people who don't love God, who love pleasure, who love the things of the world. You hang around them, guess what? You start loving pleasure, loving the things of the world. It corrupts you. They rub off on you. I love what Thomas Watson said. He said when you go to somebody in the hospital who has the plague... How often, by hanging around that person with the plague, do they catch your health? It's always the other way around. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have received Him as your personal Lord and Savior, if you have repented of your sins and committed to follow Him and die to yourself and take up your cross and go after the things He says... If you are saved by grace through faith in Christ, you can be truly grateful. You can not only believe, but know the truth. Now, look down a little bit further in 1 Timothy 4, and we'll see something else. And that is God's creative purpose number two. Not not only has God created food and marriage to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. In verse 4, he takes it one step further. Look at what it says. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. And here, Paul restates what he has already said, but expands the principle, doesn't it? He has now left marriage and foods and has gone to everything created by God. Everything is good. You remember what happened in Genesis 131 at the end of the creation, after the end of the six days? God said, behold, after you have finished, behold, it is very good. Tov me oath, exceedingly good. Good of the most superlative degree. Everything God created is very good because that's all that God can do because He is a perfect God, He is a perfectly good God, and He can't create anything bad. This is why it is so evil to come and say, well, you know, you shouldn't eat these foods, they're sinful. That is to say what God has created to be good is now bad. You should abstain from marriage. That is to say that what God created to be good is bad. It is to attribute evil to God. When you think about it, we deserve the lake of fire, but instead God gives us good things, doesn't he? Lots of good things. I mean, right now you're sitting out there and you're sitting on a pretty soft pew. And some churches have hard oak ones. And you're able to breathe. That's good. Every time you breathe in and breathe out, you are receiving from God. Every time you blink your eye, every time you move a muscle, that's all from God. When you drive home, every time you eat, all the sun, the shine, the moon, the temperature, everything is given to you by God. And He expects gratitude. He deserves gratitude and thankfulness. 
to be glorified in his creation. And this is why Paul adds the qualifier at the end when he says, for everything created by good and nothing is to be rejected if, and then he puts in the qualifier there again. That's the exact same thing he said in the verse before. It's like, Paul, come on. You already said this. Well, I'm saying it again because it's the most important thing. Be grateful for everything you have. Now, think back to the last couple of days. Have you been thankful for everything God has given you? Your clothes, your health, your job, your cars, just you know, all your material possessions, your friendship, your family, your children? You should be. Listen to what Colossians 3.17 says. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks. That is the key. God wants us to give thanks. Listen to what Hebrews 13 15 says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. I mean, how many times have we stolen glory from God? This text, tell, this text tells us we are to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. The rest of the time you don't have to. You need to be continually giving God praise. Why? Because it gives him glory. And that is why he created everything. He wants glory from it. Now let's look at this third creative purpose of God. Look at verse 5. He says, everything created by God is to be gratefully received. And then in verse 5 he says, for it is sanctified by the means of the word of God in prayer. Now this is, this is great. You know, how does eating a hamburger become a holy act? How does reading the paper become a holy act? How does your marriage become a holy institution? How does anything we do or think or experience give glory to God? Well, Paul tells us right here. And there's two things he mentions. One is objective, something that God has to do to make sure it's holy or sanctified. And then there is a second thing, a subjective thing, something that we do. Or must do in order for it to be holy and sanctified. Let's look at the first, the objective part. Things are sanctified when God declares them to be good. We just quoted Genesis 131 where God says, And behold, after he was creating everything, it was very good. Now, in that statement, he declared basically the entire contents of the universe very good. There was no sin. It was very good. Now, that is probably what Paul is referring to here because notice in verse 3 he talks about what God has created and verse 4, everything created by God. So he's got creation in his mind, we know. So when he says that it's sanctified by the word of God or set apart by the word of God, we know he's probably at least referring to Genesis 131, but I think he's talking about more than that. Because even though Genesis is the broad overarching statement that all things are good, yet the rest of the word of God tells us the specifics about what to do and not do with those things that God has created which are good. For instance, you know, the Bible says foods are good that you can eat and that's fine, but it also warns us against gluttony, doesn't it? 
The Bible says that marriage is good and fine, but it is only good and fine if we what? Submit to what the Word of God says about marriage. So I think in a more specific sense, he's talking about the Word of God as a whole and what it tells us in every area that we are to live. That is, when you go to do something or think something or say something, or when you have trials come in your life or whatever... You come to the Word of God and find out what the Word of God says to do. And if you do things according to the Word of God, that is the objective part which sanctifies it. But that's not all. There is also this subjective aspect. And we've looked at it already. That it is sanctified by prayer. What kind of prayer? Well, he's already mentioned twice in the near preceding context. Gratitude. Thankfulness. Giving things to God. That's what God wants. He wants us to express. That's when you talk to God, when you say, thanks, God, what are you doing? You are giving him glory. You are ascribing to him goodness for the things that have come into your life. Now, most of us know Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. Is that what it says? No. It says, with Thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I left that phrase out. By everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. In everything, we are to be giving thanks. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? We need to give glory to God in everything. I love what G.K. Chesterton said. Quote, you say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching and painting and swimming and fencing and boxing and walking and playing and dancing and grace before I dip the pen into the ink, end quote. That's when we're supposed to say grace all the time. Tell God thanks. I'm glad. I have a pen to write with right now. I'm glad for my computer, I'm glad for my chair, I'm glad for my health, I'm glad for my existence. This is what give glory, gives glory to God. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians 5, a couple books to the left. This is really great. For 5.16, these are some of the kind of verses you want to memorize if you really want to get some memorized quick. True worder here in verse 16. But notice the progression here. This is great. Look what he says in verse 16. Rejoice always. And what is rejoicing? It is that joy. It doesn't mean happy and giddy. It's that sense of, of joy knowing that God is sovereign, that he has brought whatever he has brought your way and given you whatever he has given for your good and for his glory. Rejoice always. Then pray without ceasing. As you have this continual joy towards God, pray without ceasing. And then look at verse 18. In everything give thanks. Isn't that interesting? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It is God's will for you and me to always be praying prayers of thanks. 
And this is exactly what we saw in Philippians 4.6 and Colossians 3.17 and the text before us three times. All of us need to be giving thanks. And we should not be doing this mechanically or out of mere religious duty because it's good, because God created it, because the purpose of His creating everything was to bring Himself glory. And so when you're using those things, when you're partaking of those things, partake, enjoy, but give thanks. And hopefully most of us have learned to give thanks, at least at our meal. I find it really interesting as I was studying this, a good case in point is Acts 27, verses 34 and 35. It's when Paul, in Acts 27 is when Paul is in the Adriatic Sea, and there's that big nasty storm, and remember he's the prisoner. I, I love this story because it teaches some good things about leadership, but he's a prisoner, and the storm is really bad, and they're going to die. All the people in the boat are going to die. And so they start pitching stuff over the bo- you know, overboard trying to save themselves. And pretty soon, Paul goes from being prisoner to being captain. Ha, I love it. Pretty soon, he's saying, listen to me. And everybody's going, okay, just tell us what to do. He's now the authority on the ship. He says, if you do what God says, nobody's going to perish. That is so great. And they didn't perish, none of them. But this is what Acts 27, 34, and right in the middle of this intense storm, their lives are in danger, they're going to perish, there seems nowhere out, and this is what he says, Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation. For not a hair from your head of any of you will perish. And having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all. And he broke it and began to eat. I love that. I mean, here, you know, this life-threatening situation, and Paul says, hey, God's going to save us. Let's just have a bite. And he says, come on, you're not going to die. Just, you know, have some matzah or whatever. But before he puts... Anything in his mouth, one crumb, he thanks God. Now that is so great. That, that shows us a priority that I think a lot of us have lost. That we, you know, we want to thank God when good things happen. You know, when we get the job and the promotion or the clean bill of health or whatever. Oh, thank God. Always thank God. Thank God when things are hard and miserable and wretched and when you're sick and when trials come upon you. Thank Him. Why? Because Romans 8.28 says He is causing all things to work together for your good. But He throws in a criteria there too in Romans 8.28, doesn't He? For those who love God and those who are called according to a purpose, you could replace that with those who believe and know the truth. It is a tragedy when people are deceived into thinking that they are saved when they are not. And it is terrible to see the pain and the anguish and false doctrine wreaking havoc in their lives. But it is far worse that God does not get the glory He deserves. God has created many good things to be received by those who believe and know the truth. And we need to receive them, and we need to enjoy them, 
but always with gratefulness. Always believing, always submitting to the, what the Word of God says about them and how they are to be used. Now, you need to ask yourself, is that me? Am I one who believes and knows the truth? Do I know where I'm going for eternity? Do you? Do you know where you'll be for eternity? Do you know you're going to heaven? And do you know why you're going to heaven? And do you know why from the scriptures? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and have you repented of your sins? Have you come to the place where you realize, I am a sinner and I cannot save myself and I need Jesus Christ to save me from my sins? And have you come to him empty-handed, with no good works, with nothing to offer God, and said, save me, I cannot save myself. Is that what you've done? If you haven't, you need to repent. God commands you to repent. Christ stands before you as the one slain for your sins. But if you do not accept Him, if you will not submit to Him, if you will not follow Him, You cannot fulfill your purpose for existing except to demonstrate God's justice in condemning you. But if you have done that or you are and you are a believer, everything created by God as regulated by His Word is for you to enjoy. And don't let anybody tell you you can't have this or you must abstain from that if the Word of God says you can have it in gratefulness. And as you leave here today, remember that everything God has created is sanctified or made holy by the means of the Word of God in prayer. So make sure you do everything according to the Scriptures. Just stay in the Word of God and meditate on the Scriptures and study them and let let them dwell in you richly and long for them like the pure milk that they are. And in all that, may we be a church who is constantly giving thanks to God for He is the one who deserves it. That's why we exist, to give Him glory In Psalm 100, we have a psalm of thanks, and Isaac Watts, an early hymn writer and Puritan, put it to meter, and this is how he wrote it. Ye nations round the earth rejoice before the Lord your sovereign King. Serve Him with a cheerful heart and voice, with all your tongues His glory sing. The Lord is God, tis He alone doth life and breath and being give. We are His work. And not our own. The sheep that on his pastures live. Enter his great gates with songs of joy. With praises to his courts repair. And make it your divine employ to pay your thanks and honors there. The Lord is good. The Lord is kind. Great is his grace, his mercy sure. And the whole race of man shall find his truth from age to age endure. Let's pray. Father, we come before you so grateful, so full of thanks for saving us, for giving us your word, for giving us friends and family and children and health and trials and everything that you bring our way to cause us to have opportunities to give you glory. Father, may we be content with what we have and whatever you bring our way, may we continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. 
May we come to you in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. May whatever we do be to your glory with a grateful heart. Father, may we not be snared by well-intentioned, deceived people who want to enslave us to man-made religion, who want to draw boundaries outside the scriptures or subtract from your word. Father, may we be people of conviction and passion, but may we not step over the boundary and add to your word or think that by our own means we can be sanctified. Father, if there are people here who don't know you, who need Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, may they cry out to you. May they repent. May they ask you to forgive them. And Father, may you pour your grace out on them abundantly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.